Welcome to the Learning Laborers Podcast, where we are passionate about integrating scholarship and ministry experience. Merry Christmas, Taylor. Merry, Merry Christmas. It's that time of year. Yeah, just very festive of you. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Do you have any fun Christmas traditions? My wife and I, uh, we tried to start a tradition where we, we would do like a jigsaw puzzle leading up to Christmas each year. And uh, we did the first year and it took so much time and I went crazy. And so we don't do that anymore. You got There's puzzle people and then there's not puzzle people. You can't cross that boundary though. Like if you're not a puzzle person, you can't try to be a puzzle person. Yeah, I think that's hardwired into the genes. You either have the gift or you don't. I, I wasn't necessarily bad at it. I mean, I'm not like a genius, but it just like uh, took so much time and it's so detailed. I'm not trying and... to talk about like skill. It's like you either enjoy doing that or you don't. I don't right. think yeah. you can like dutifully work up into yeah. this space of like liking to do a right. puzzle. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I like enjoy it when it's like getting close to done <laughs> and it's like yeah. obvious which pieces are going where. That's fun. But like the beginning, so once the puzzle becomes really, really easy, you just need to get some like kids puzzles then. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, because I don't know why I continue. I just feel like I, I feel like I have to finish this and uh, I was not enjoying it. But what does that have to do with Christmas? I don't know. It's just like uh, try to start a tradition where it's like this time of year, like in the Advent season, we'll like work on a puzzle oh. and then. It'll be done by Christmas. And uh, especially now that we have a child, I just, (laughs) I don't see that happening. Yeah. Children and jigsaw puzzles. Yeah, not big ones. There's a few pieces missing. Yeah, if you have like a dog or a child, small puzzle pieces aren't aren't good. Okay, well, this is quite an intro that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about because your Christmas tradition has nothing to do with Christmas. (laughs) No, the other one that we do here on the field is our whole team. We get together on Christmas. Well, not Christmas Eve, some like one of the days close to Christmas. And we we all get together in the evening and we eat hors d'oeuvres. Everybody makes hors d'oeuvres. Uh-huh. And and usually the kids sing a song or two. And um, well, we started actually doing a couple songs, me and another guy on our team and a gal on our team playing some like kind of jazzy Christmas music because oh. he plays saxophone and i play guitar and she plays the the box drum and so we <clears throat> we practice a couple times leading up to it and so yeah we have a fun get together that's a fun it's a fun tradition fun. hors d'oeuvres and drinks and music yeah jazzy christmas music with a saxophone that sounds a lot better than a puzzle yeah oh, oh yeah oh yeah i'll take that so do you have do you have a tradition where you go and like um I don't know, maybe you take one of the children and you find a stable and you put the child in the stable and kind of reenact the birth. Do I kidnap a child and put it in a stable? Uh, no, I haven't, can't say I've done that, taking a child to a barn. Um, but I see where I see the segue you're trying to build. I'm trying to build a segue. No, we don't do that. <laughs> and I feel like now I have to include this. We do not suggest condone doing anything like that for multiple reasons one just it's a horrible idea but two it has no resonance with the christmas story 
Really? I thought Jesus was born in a stable. There we go. Here we go. So this is the episode where Taylor dismantles the Christmas story. I don't like how violent that sounds, but um, yeah. Well, it's better than like destroy or decimate or. Sure. It's not the most violent term you could use, but it's. Obliterate. Anyway, so let's get into this. I'm 32 years old. I just revealed my age, but um, that means I've heard the Christmas story dozens of times. I've heard sermons summaries there's movie adaptations and now as a parent i have three children um i've read all these different children's books adaptations of the story and so i've probably heard this story hundreds if not thousands of times would you say the same denver yeah i think so yep so the first question is what does all this telling of the story do to us like when we tell a story that many times and we hear it in all these different things. One of the things that it can do, and I think if we're not careful, it will do, is build a false familiarity. A false familiarity. Yeah, so it can build up this familiarity with the story where we think we know it, like inside and out. And the reality mm-hmm. is that we're actually detached from the real story. It's actually mm-hmm. a false version of the story. And that's, I think, the danger of, of just the familiar. And now, now, I don't think familiarity is a bad thing, right? Right. We want to be familiar with important stories. But there's this, there's this danger that's always at work with anything familiar, any like pattern or ritual they could become, you know, there's just these dangers. So we mm-hmm. have to be aware of this. And I think with the Christmas story, um, this is a great example of a familiarity that can actually work itself up into being unfamiliar to us. Um, so Kenneth Bailey is a, a scholar. I actually just talked about him with our uh, episode with Lois de Verberg. Uh-huh. Um, but he has this example, I think is a good one. Okay. And there's right. a, it's a little lengthy quote, but I think it's good. A diamond ring is admired and worn with pride, but with the passing of time, it needs to be taken to a jeweler to be claimed to restore its original brilliance. The more mm-hmm. the ring is worn, Worn, the greater the need for occasional cleaning. The more familiar we are with the biblical story, the more difficult it is to view it outside of the way it's always been understood. The birth story of Jesus is such a story. It's like a diamond ring. It's good. It's valuable. We love it. But the more you wear it, the more you hear about it, the more unfamiliar and it can become, actually. Does that make sense? Yeah, unfamiliar in the sense of, um, or a false familiarity, like, like you think like you know it, distorted where it's it's not the it subtly changes over time to the point where it actually doesn't match the original story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of what the metaphor is getting at. Yeah, so and that happens is... in our individual lives, like you mentioned, but also happens in the like the life of the and tradition of the church. Right. We've had two thousand years of telling this story. Mm-hmm. And um, as we build out that tradition and, you know, fill in the details of the picture of the story, sometimes we add things that aren't necessarily in the text. Yes. And those things become embedded in the story mm-hmm. to the point where we don't realize that they're not actually in the text. Yeah, they get embedded. That's a good way to say it. So this is my plan. I want us to walk through the Christmas story as told in Luke. And I just okay. want to clean it up in a sense. I want to dust it off. 
and I want to restore its original brilliance. Okay, to kind of use that metaphor. Um, and I think one of the things, if you're, I've taught through this a few times with my people, um, and anytime you're kind of doing this, it uh, you have to be cognizant. Like this can sound arrogant, okay, or it can sound mm-hmm. kind of like a like know it all. What's a good synonym for that? Like someone who's just like, oh, I've got this like secret hidden insight or something, and I can correct you. Like I, I'm not just trying to correct people. Sure. Right, right, right. That's not the the point, the heart of it. We just have to realize and admit that the diamond ring can get rusty, right? Or familiar things can can lead us into a false familiarity. So uh, there's humility here. I'm trying to be careful and cautious and set the tone right for this. And right. to your point, I'm not just trying to obliterate Christmas for people. Right, okay? right. Yeah, there'll be reconstruction on the other side of dismantling and deconstruction yeah and every time someone brings up the christmas story you don't have to be the person in the room that's like well actually (laughs) you know don't be that person that's just annoying and to be clear we're going to focus in on specific aspects that have kind of um departed from the text but a lot of the aspects of the story that we tell are true and remain um faithful at the same time we're just kind of trying to to get specific on those areas where we might have changed the story over time. So, um what I want to propose first is a traditional kind of familiar telling of the Christmas story. So we know kind of where we're working from. And to do this, I uh, pulled out the Jesus story book Bible. It's a, it's a kid's storybook Bible. It's one of the mm-hmm. ones. Um, yeah, I think I've seen that one. Yep. So I just opened it up this morning. Yeah. And went Which, to the by the way, did you did you see that N.T. Wright's coming out with like a children's no. Bible? Oh wow! Yeah, it's coming out this next year. Yeah, I think twenty twenty four. Well, good. That's that's good. That's much needed because almost every children's telling of the story sounds a little bit like this. So I'm actually I'm I'm going to read this for us. What it says in the Jesus okay. Storybook Bible. Okay. Um, and in the story, I don't I don't want to read the whole thing. The angels already told Mary that she's going to be pregnant and have a baby. And so we pick okay. up on page 180 of the Jesus Storybook Bible, if you want to read along at home. Okay. So this is what it says. Sure enough, it was just as the angel had said. Nine months later, Mary was almost ready to have her baby. Now Mary and Joseph had to take a trip to Bethlehem, the town King David was from. But when they reached the little town, they found every room was full. Every bed was taken. Go away, the innkeepers told them. There isn't any place for you. Where would they stay? Soon Mary's baby would come. They couldn't find anywhere except an old, tumble-down stable. So they stayed where the cows and the donkeys and the horses stayed. And there Mm -hmm. in the stable, amongst the chickens and the donkeys and the cows, in the quiet of the night, God gave the world his wonderful gift, his baby son. So that's one iteration of the traditional, familiar telling of the story, right? Does that sound familiar to you? It does, yeah. 
There's a lot of emphasis on donkeys and cows. That's like a children's move, you know? Anywhere there's animals, they can just like just highlight the Right. Like on Noah's Ark. But don't talk about all the ones floating in the water. <laughs> all but two of these animals are, yeah. Okay. So that's, you know, to put it in our own words, I think yeah. if we're honest, we have this assumption in the back of our head, there's the census, right? There is yes. some sort of decree. And Joseph and Mary, they're on their way to Bethlehem. Mary's pregnant, nine months pregnant, like about yeah. to have this baby. They're on this yeah. donkey. They're entering the town late at night. They're looking for a hotel room. They can't find one. People are not being hospitable. They can't find a place to stay. And so they settle for this barn in a bit of a high anxiety moment where Jesus yeah. is born. Um, mm-hmm. And then wise men are there. Shepherds are there. Jesus gets some gifts. And there it is. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Three wise men specifically. Three wise men is also a part of it. So, so if that is the story, Denver, what is the message of that story? Well, it definitely it emphasizes kind of the um, the difficulties, mm-hmm. the struggle, the the loneliness and humility with which Jesus mm-hmm. came into the picture. You know, among animals in a stable. Right. Um, that's definitely mm-hmm. a big part of the story. Yeah. It so it could emphasize Jesus's humility. Could emphasize how Jesus was rejected from the very start. Right. Yeah. He yeah. came to his own as people did not receive him. Right. There's mm-hmm. kind of that in there. It could be a foretaste of the hardship Jesus is going to face throughout his whole life. Right. Yeah. Um, so those are kind of the messaging attached to that story. What I want to submit to you is that this story lacks the original brilliance of what Luke oh. is doing. Uh, back to the ring metaphor. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, to yeah. Tie in the ring. So yes, it's lost yeah. its shine a little bit in that telling. So let's actually get into the biblical story. Okay. Um, and I want to hold this traditional familiar story in the back of our minds, but set it aside. Try to enter into a, a space of being unfamiliar with that story and just try to walk through the passage and see what comes of it. Okay. So if um, what version do you have in front of you? Uh, I'm looking at the NRSV. I've got the NIV in front of me. So Okay. Um, and I might make some notes about that translation, but that's fine. We can read in yours and that'll be be good. So could you read the first three verses of Luke 2 for us? Okay. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. So why is Luke telling us that? It's like, why does Luke tell us that? Um... Well, one, you could argue he's he's um, connecting some historical dots mm-hmm. to kind of give some credibility to his story. Sure. You know, he started his gospel saying, I've collected all these eyewitness accounts. And, you know, he seems, Luke, probably even, even a little bit more than the other gospel others, seems interested in historical data. Okay. Um, but also it helps us understand why a family that's from Nazareth, lives in Nazareth, is going to Bethlehem in the first place. Yep. Yeah, that's a key one, I think. So there's a few other reasons um, that scholars typically point out. Luke likes to provide the ruler at the beginning of several scenes that he puts in his accounts. Like you can see this in one five and three one. Like he likes to kind of situate the reader um, at times. And maybe that's a historical yeah. thing. Um, but also it could be that Luke is reminding us of the ruler of Rome 
because he's mm. about to talk about a different kind of ruler. Right. Like there could be this little polemical thing going on and we can, we can read into that a little bit, but that might be something that's going on. And as we keep reading, I think that thread will actually be pulled all the way through. So, yeah. Specifically, specifically about Emperor Augustus, you're saying. Yeah. Or just a ruler in general. Yeah. Okay. But I think he's also like, he's, he's situating you historically and he's telling you, like you said, why Mary and Joseph are going to travel to Bethlehem. Okay. Okay. So let's read the uh, next two verses. All right. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. Um, so Joseph is from where? Like his ancestry is from mm-hmm. Bethlehem. So when you return to your hometown, uh, do you typically yeah. know people here? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. And say you needed a place to stay. Mm-hmm. Do you think you could find a place to stay in your hometown? Yeah, I don't think I would have to be forced to go on Airbnb. I'd probably be <laughs> able to to find a place to stay. Right. Yeah. If only there was Airbnb for Joseph yeah. and Mary. They just had innkeepers and whatever they're talking about. Um, it's just yeah. something to keep in mind there, right? Like, remember <clears throat> this is this is Joseph's hometown. Like, yeah, and everyone's everyone is going to their hometown. So all his relatives that live in other places are all going to be gathering there, right? Right. Um, okay. And we've talked about this before, but a hospitality culture, um, it's pro- a pretty big deal uh, in that culture to be hospitable. Yeah. It was actually like um, an honor to host people, and so you have a bunch of relatives um, all converging in your hometown, and mm-hmm. You have a pregnant wife. <laughs> yeah. Seems pretty reasonable that you could find a place to stay, right? You would think. And unless unless the shame of having a pregnant wife mm-hmm. that you haven't actually married yet was enough that Ooh. the family wanted to disassociate from you. Okay. Well, there's an opening there for sure. Yeah. Now, um, because you would say that um Mary <clears throat> It would be pretty obvious that she was pregnant. If she's nine months pregnant. Does it say that she's nine months pregnant? Oh, I don't know. That's what you said from the kids book. <laughs> the kids book says <laughs> that she was nine months pregnant. Um, but that's not, we haven't read that yet. True. So let's keep that open. Although I'm guessing if she's, she's probably very young. Okay. And so it probably will be yeah, maybe fairly maybe. obvious when she's maybe. pregnant. Maybe they know, maybe they don't. But that's that's a good um a good scrutiny. All right, let's read the next two verses. Okay. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Ah. Oh. Okay. So let's look at what's in the text and also what's not in the text. Okay. Tradition, the story that we read, assumes that the birth happened on the night they were traveling into Bethlehem on a donkey. Does the text say that? Uh, It does not say that. It also doesn't say that it's the 25th of December. (laughs) Yeah, that's a whole other can of worms, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Yeah, but it just says while they were there. 
yeah. the time came for the baby to be born. How long do you think they could have been there? Oh, I don't know. I guess I have to go back in the story and see. Because Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, right? Yeah, that's a little bit earlier. It says Mary remained with Elizabeth for three months and then returned mm. to her home. So okay. that probably it seems like she was past three months. So she's at least in the second trimester when okay. she she went to Bethlehem. But that's all we have. That's all we have to go on, I think. Yeah, I think just the point uh, was made to me that there is no like middle of the night. She's in labor pains on a donkey coming into town. Like that's just that's right. not there. They it was while they were there. They could have been situated there for weeks. True. True. Months even. I mean Yeah, that's a good point. And so much of the reason we assume that it's the night of is because of how we interpret verse seven. Mm. Which which says she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no uh yours says no place for them in the inn. That's what it says. What's your say? NIV says uh, there was no guest room available for them. Mm. Oh. Yeah, so there's there's some things we need to clarify here. First, a manger. Do you know what a manger is? A manger is like a feeding trough. Yeah, it is. For animals. It's, it's for animals, right? So there we go. There's the first kind of like implicit assumption that animals are somehow involved. Mm-hmm. So born in a feeding trough. And why were why was Jesus born among the animals? Because there was no guest room available for them or no room in the inn. Those are actually two very different things, right? Right. An inn, we assume like a commercial hotel. Yeah, super eight. Yeah, super eight. Holiday inn. Um, those weren't super prevalent in the ancient world. Uh, there right. was a Greek word for that. Um, but it's not the word that's used here. Yeah. The word that's used here is better translated guest room or upper room. Yeah. It's Cataluma. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Look at you. And that's the same word that's used in Luke 22 when Jesus uh, goes to an owner of a house. And he's like, uh-huh. um, where's the guest room? Where's the upper room where I may eat yeah. the Passover with my disciples? Yeah. yeah. So it's it's not that they were looking for hotels. It's that they didn't find a place that had an open guest room. Okay. Like that part of the house was not available. Maybe because all these relatives have come flooding back into Bethlehem. Right. And so the people who still live there maybe are, they have some full houses right now. Mm-hmm. So, okay, with that in mind, there's no room in the guest room. So Jesus was born outside of the house with the animals. Is that what we're saying? He's born wherever the angels or the animals are. So Yeah, where are the animals? That's where this whole tradition of Jesus being born in like a barn right. or a stable yeah. kind of comes into play. And this is where cultural context really helps us mm. and where biblical scholars can help us. Um, in first century Palestine, a home would usually have one large room for living and sleeping with an adjacent area at either a lower level under the same roof where animals were kept uh, for the night. Mm -hmm. 
Um, R.T. France says, the family living space, often a single room, was either adjacent to or above an area where the animals were housed in order to secure them for the night and provide warmth in the winter. Mm. So, so there's there's pictures you can look up online of kind of like a first century Palestinian home. Maybe we can include a link in the show notes. Yeah, maybe we'll do that. Um, but what this kind of unlocks for us is, okay, it's not that Jesus was maybe born in a stable outside the house. Right. You imagine a house, there's a family living space. Some even had a, a guest room to house guests. But also off that living space was an adjacent covered roofed area to house animals during the night. And so mm-hmm. you've got this full house, probably with relatives. The guest room's full and she needs to have a baby. <laughs> yeah. But she's still in the house, right? She's still right, right. in the room. Being t- also culturally, um, pregnant women were uh, in, in Eastern ancient culture were highly uh, protected and taken care of like right uh, kenneth bailey makes the point that that a an eastern woman not being taken care of would i mean this would be the most inhospitable scenario you could probably paint right she's, she's not being housed in her hometown house with any relative anywhere and when it comes time for her to give birth they're not even giving her space under a roof to do so like it's just unthinkable right as far as the children's story the the, the traditional story it's it seems yeah. very improbable that there would be that much in hospital i mean even in our culture western culture a nine-month uh pregnant woman you mm-hmm. know like we will go way out of our way to you know help them take care of them you know all that kind of stuff even even in our culture it's mm-hmm. yeah yeah be bizarre to send them out to the barn <laughs> so what is luke saying He's saying that the guest room or upper room was full. Yeah. And so because that room was filled, they had a baby in the common living space at the house, which included animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so the couple's not turned away, as implied in many Christmas plays, but has actually shown mm-hmm. hospitality in spite of the humble circumstances. Yeah. And R.T. France says, so Jesus was born among the family in the living room. Yeah. The circumstances were humble and perhaps inconvenient in contrast to an emperor's palace, but the scene is one of warmth and of acceptance in a family home, not of rejection and squalor. Mm. So notice how this is, this is why I think it's important is because all of these little details that we include around the traditional telling of the story actually have the possibility of misshaping what the message is. Yeah. And and that's where I think things can kind of get get out of whack. Right. And especially, you know, I made the, the comment before about maybe there's some some shame involved in the um the fact that this pregnancy has happened outside of the marriage covenant. But if we if again if we go back to the story of Mary and Elizabeth these are relatives that seem to be very welcoming, honoring to Mary. And so I think we could assume that this would be the the response of the rest of the family. Yeah. And Kenneth Bailey points this out as well. He's like, if they really couldn't find a place um, in Bethlehem, he's like, 
um, Elizabeth is not too far away either. Like there's just so yeah. many options where like, if you don't assume this is happening in the middle of the night and they have like no options, right? it just right. opens up a lot of yeah. the story to say, oh, okay. And I think we, this is a good example of how we can sometimes import our own experience into the, the mm. narrative where like we don't have animals in our houses. So we kind of import that into the narrative where, but in their time there were animals in the house. I mean, and it makes sense too. Like, I mean, we have, we have some animals in the house, but we, don't. Oh, that's true. We, we have farm animals. We don't, we have, we have pets. Yeah. But I bet you that a big full grown sheep is going to keep you a lot warmer than a little chihuahua. I was just saying that. Bring back farm animals in the house. Yeah. yeah. Especially for milk. Think about that. Winter time. You don't want to go walking out to the barn to get milk. Boom. The milk goes right there. I don't know what they're doing in your context, but we're not even drinking animal milk anymore. It's almond, oh. cashew. Yeah. Keep your almond almond tree in the living room. Anyway. <laughs> so when uh, one scholar says this, um, Parsons, he writes in the Padea series, he says, Luke is actually highlighting the hospitality of this householder, friend or relative, um, maybe even an anonymous householder, because he doesn't even tell wh- whose house it is. Yeah. And he's actually highlighting it, and he's not condemning the inhospitality of some insensitive innkeeper. Luke's point is that Jesus came to his own, and his own did receive him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, returning to this theme of, okay, what's the message then? What's the message? If this is the Mm. story and not, it's like humility and not rejection and hardship. There is some hardship and stuff, but here's the real punch of the story for Luke that I think Jesus has a fairly normal birth in a common living room in a house in Bethlehem. So Jesus was born as a common person. And Mm. Diane Chen um, writes this, a close reading of Luke reveals a scene that is less chaotic and a point that has more to do with status reversal than with inhospitality and rejection. So I think that's what Luke is actually trying to convey, that Jesus is a commoner in status, and I think that's how a first-century reader would have heard it. Oh, he was born in an ordinary house. He was born just like one of us. And, And I think this theme of status reversal is one that is really, really key to the story, especially given all of Luke's gospel. Like if you're familiar with Luke's gospel narrative, um, this is reinforced over and over again, that Jesus has come almost uh, not only to minister to those of low status, but to reverse, like almost to to turn things upside down, to lift Mm -hmm. up the lowly. And um, I think you see that right off, right out of the gate with his birth story. He comes as this lowly, humble, common person. And God often works to exalt the lowly. Right. Um, again, if you situate this in Luke's context, can you think of anywhere in Luke that that's reinforced or where you've already seen that theme kind of worked out a little bit? Yeah, I mean, Mary's song yep. definitely emphasizes this as far as her talking about God 
providing for the hungry, the lowly, yeah. his servants, um, bringing down the the powerful from their thrones. Mm-hmm. Yep, so you've already seen it there. That's one that's already kind of reinforced. Secondly, I think it's a bit culturally hidden from us again, but this seems to be what Luke is getting at by including the story of the shepherds. Like only Luke's account tells us that shepherds were there. Uh, Matthew right. tells us magi were there, which are these kings and he's kind of setting up Jesus as this royal figure um, as and as one for the Gentiles and things like that. But Luke tells us that shepherds were there. And why, so why is he including that detail? Mm. And uh, again, culturally, shepherds in their culture were ordinary workers who had very little social standing. Uh, shepherding mm. was a despised profession in the ancient world. Shepherds were often poor peasant, peasants who hired themselves out to earn supplemental income to support their families. They worked in teams, took turns keeping watch at night, being on the lookout for wolves and thieves. And I mean, they're they're not um, people of high status. Right. Um, so I think that Luke includes shepherds highlights that theme of status, um, reversal as well. So Luke wants his readers to understand that the first to hear of Jesus's birth will not be the religious and political power brokers in Jerusalem, mm. but a group of forgotten and lowly hired hands in the low, lonely fields of a small yeah, town. That's good. And, and maybe also a nod to... David's own story, right? his mm. ancestor David, who was himself a shepherd. Very true. And rose to be a king. Maybe yep. maybe a nod there to the story. Yep. Yeah, for sure. So I think those are uh, two reasons that kind of fit with the status reversal. And then that one, one more thing here that we kind of mentioned at the beginning, this contrast with Caesar Augustus. Yeah. I mean, this birth narrative is filled with what could be called imperial or political language. Um, I mean, the word gospel, I've done some work on this, is one of those terms. Like it's, It was very familiar to the Greco or Roman world um, to talk about the good news of a king's reign. Um, and so when the angels declare to the shepherds, I give you good news or gospel of great mm-hmm. joy, right? That was tied up in imperial language and things like this. So Luke is attaching that to Jesus, talking about him as this bringer of the gospel, and yet he's born in under conditions of normal, common hospitality amongst his family, relatives, or hometown, and uh, met by shepherds, all a part of this, I think, program for Luke to highlight status reversal that Jesus is coming to right. bring. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's the real punch of the story. I have this great quote. R.T. France says this. This is a story of contrasts. The imperial pomp and political dominance of Caesar Augustus contrast with the humble village home in which a new world ruler is born. He is born in the royal city of David, but he is there only as a visitor without even a proper guest room. Although the news of his birth comes in an astonishing manifestation of heaven's glory, it comes to the most ordinary of mortals, agrarian workers, probably dirty and smelly, and all of this speaks of the God of the Magnificat, who brings down rulers from their thrones but lifts up the humble, the first are last, and the last are first. So I think the birth story of Jesus highlights this, 
And that's what yeah. Luke wants us to see. I, I really think that that's what Luke is doing. That's good. Yeah, I like it. And in what sense do you see that um, the kind of the traditional story that we've over time become familiar with runs against that grain or or undermines that? Yeah, because I think, no, it's a really important question. So, okay, why draw out? Why draw this out? Other than it being kind of an interesting like, oh, wow, I didn't see that. You know, is it really that important that we do things like this? And that's where I think it's part of the larger initiative that we have to be about as ministry laborers in terms of interacting with Scripture. Like, we have to take opportunities to show people that we read with cultural blinders, that we Mm -hmm. read traditions onto the text and into the text, um, and we need to expose how prevalent this can be and how how just not easy, but how we just kind of sit with these things. And, you know, we can read the story year after year and never be um, clued in or awakened to how we're, how we're doing that, how we're reading things into the text, how we're just mapping a total scenario onto the passage that's not there. Um, Mm. And while it may not have a ton of theological significance, maybe for this story, some themes still get pulled through. Just now take that as a case study for, do we do this with any other passages? Do we do Mm. this with more important, maybe like aspects of, of scripture or things like that? And I think what this does, it it humbles us to say, yeah, "Yeah, we're capable of doing that. And I can see how we're capable of doing that. Um, um, I could see how awakening people to, to something like this could maybe grant us a little more humility to come to scripture with more of a, Hey, I need to, I need to make sure I'm checking all my assumptions at the door here. Um, I need to make sure I'm not reading things into this text unfaithfully and that I'm reading this in community to see these other things that I'm consulting scholarship because they're doing work on these things. Like, I think it just gives you this different posture. Maybe it's coming to scripture. Yeah, taking the time to re-examine the familiar, to try to tease out what is really there and what maybe we're importing mm-hmm. from from ourselves. Yeah, I think that's really important. And at the yeah. same time, creating space for more liturgical uses of the stories in the text, where mm-hmm. you know, you don't when you get, um, you always want to be faithful to the text. So I'm not saying like intentionally misrepresent the text but creating spaces where we're not necessarily taking the time to do all this examination but simply mm-hmm. reading right. the story or telling the story and and being formed by it but then like you're saying having other times and spaces where we do mm-hmm. examine the story to make sure hey the way we're using that liturgically is it faithful yeah um yeah i think that's really helpful yeah because that's that's i can i can sense and, you know, some people be like, okay, that was a really neat exercise in how we don't see the maybe the cultural connotations of this or whatnot. Um, I was like, does it really change how I'm following Jesus today? Ah, you, you, you can kind of sense like maybe someone that would say that or react that way. Right. Uh, right. And I think 
I totally hear that and I appreciate, um, you know, where they're coming from in that. I think we also just have to recognize that these little things all add up and shape how we interact with the Bible. And if following Jesus has anything to do with how we interact with Scripture, which I think it does, then it's mm-hmm. going to impact how we follow Jesus. Maybe not directly or explicitly or immediately, but in the long run, I think it's it's going to have impact. Um, sure. And there are some things, um, not to open a whole nother can of worms, but maybe one day, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, we read Genesis 1 with traditional lenses on or cultural lenses. We read yeah. scientism and material origin stories into that. Um, often, uh, uh, some people have inherited an eschatological framework or tradition uh, to read Revelation a certain way or to read the rapture into Thessalonians 4 or whatever. Like, we do this a lot. Or, yeah. or you know, we read... 1950s patriarchal culture into Pauline passages, right? We do these things across so many different Mm -hmm. passages. Um, And so if this is an opportunity just to open that up for people and to say, Hey, look, like we are misreading this, you know, Mm -hmm. and it, and it's not for lack of reading it or being exposed to it. (laughs) It's actually the opposite, you know? So hopefully that could open up, open up some things for people. That's good. And it's still a good story. It's still crazy. makes for a good uh, kids pageant. Kids pageant. There's still animals. I, I didn't take away the animals. Right? Yeah, there's still lots of animals. Cows and donkeys and chickens and cows and donkeys. Implied animals, but... Yeah. Well, that's, that's a lot of food for thought for us, Taylor, as we go into the Christmas season, finish out this Advent. Um. As we think about the story of Jesus, I want to repeat: don't don't go to your family gatherings and just be the actually person. Like actually, actually. So actually. this word Cataluma. Don't do that. Um, that's not the reason behind it. I think it helps us, as we said, open our eyes to how we can we can uh, we can misinterpret scripture, even very familiar ones, and that's a, yeah. an important practice for our formation in following Jesus. I think. Yeah, and for those that are listening, that are ministry leaders, teachers, pastors, right, missionaries. That as when we do tell the story or teach on the story, um, maybe re-examining the way we're telling it and finding ways to emphasize the things that Luke emphasizes or that Matthew emphasizes. Um, yeah. Yep. All right. Have a very merry Christmas, Taylor. Yes. And all of our listeners, Amen. keep on. Learning. No, it's Keep on laboring. Keep on caroling. Oh, don't add caroling to it. Okay, I'm going to shut this Amen. down. Amen. Well, that concludes our episode for this week. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we hope you glean some some good insight for your ministry or your scholarship or hopefully both because it's really our goal here at the learning laborers to create a space uh, where ministry experience and scholarship can overlap 
uh, in the lives of individual people like you. Uh, So we want to thank you for listening. We want to thank everyone who supports us and helps make the podcast possible. If you're interested in supporting our efforts, check out our Patreon link in the show notes where you can sign up to join us for as little as $3 per month. It's our prayer that through this content, more laborers in the fields of ministry can feel resourced to point their people to Jesus through their study of scripture. So continue to tune in wherever you listen to podcasts.